Republicans to wake up. Is what the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Your humble host is grateful to the following individuals who are voluntary subscribers helping to support the Peter B. Collins Show. Nancy Kilgore, Michael McMillan, John DeVries, Grant Gibson. Thank you for your support. And if you'd like to help, just go to my website. Our voluntary subscriptions start as low as $5 a month via PayPal. And all you have to do is click on the link on the right-hand side that says you can help. Later in this podcast, the founder of the Organic Wine Company, Veronique Raskin, will join us. She's got some exciting news about the new Peter B. Collins Organic Wine Club. Details coming up. one of my favorite songs from the 80s. It's New Order called True Faith. Returning to our program today is war correspondent Anand Gopal. He was with us in late January before he returned to Afghanistan. He writes for the uh, Christian Science Monitor and the Wall Street Journal. He also publishes in The Nation magazine. And when we uh, spoke to Anand uh, a few months back, He had just published a very important piece about uh, U.S. and NATO night raids in Afghanistan that were infuriating the population, and also disclosed to us that there are uh, detainment camps outside of the uh, airbase at Bagram near Kabul, Afghanistan, where individuals are being held and reportedly subjected to extreme treatment. Uh, I can't call it torture because I haven't been there or interviewed those individuals, but that's... uh, what one would suspect. Anand Gopal joins us from Dubai today, and welcome back to our program, Anand. Thanks for having me. Um, Just a a first quick sketch about you and your work. Uh, What is it currently like uh, to report on the ground in Afghanistan, and how does it compare to your previous visits? Well, it's it's harder than ever to report on the ground, especially outside of Kabul and especially outside of uh, um, the wires, so to speak. Uh, there's been a number of offensives uh, that have happened recently, U.S. military offensives, and it's been difficult to report on those uh, independently just because of uh, the security situation being so poor. And you declined to be embedded? I have been embedded times before. The, the most recent operation, which is which took place in Marja in, in February, I decided not to be embedded for that, um, just because I thought that, on, for one, um, so much of the media was being embedded, uh, and two, just uh, I didn't think I'd be able to get an accurate picture of what's happening if I were. 
Mm -hmm. So you have the option, and uh, the U.S. command doesn't prevent you uh, from reporting independently if you choose not to embed? They don't prevent you, um, but typically uh, the Taliban does. It's very difficult to get into areas where the man operates unless you have permission from them, and even then it's, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, as we continue, I do want to talk about Marja and also the uh, new assault on Kandahar. Uh, but first, we have a story that uh, just broke in the last 24 hours. A squad of suicide bombers and gunmen stormed a provincial governor's compound in southwestern Afghanistan. There was a fierce battle, and 13 people died, including nine of those uh, who were assailants uh, in this exchange. This is in uh, Zaranj, which is the capital of Nimroz province. And the attackers wore police uniforms, uh, which uh, is a tactic that certainly uh, creates a lot of problems uh, for those who can't pick out uh, the so-called enemy uh, to begin with. Is, is this uh, something that we're seeing on a regular basis? Is, is this uh, kind of... Uh, um, uh, the, the, the tactic doesn't appear to be concentrated where the U.S. forces are massing. And so this appears to be a very clever approach to keep the U.S. and NATO forces uh, off base. Well, that, that's right. And uh, this is a tactic we've seen more and more over the last year. What's happened is the Taliban has shifted away from some of the harder targets. Uh, what's happening, too, they're still attacking uh, military convoys. But uh, there's also been... Uh, a lot of instances where they've stormed provincial capitals, and these are typically very small towns that don't have a very heavy uh, military presence, don't have a very police presence, heavy uh, police presence. Uh, this attack in Zaranj is a typical example of this. Zaranj is a very sparsely populated area, um, and it's easy to send a number of suicide bombers in there uh, and get a lot of media attention. And... Um is this complicating things for the Karzai government, or is the central government basically in hopeless mode and just responds to uh, the U.S. forces and the command? I think it's basically in hopeless mode, especially when we're talking about these sorts of uh, smaller towns outside of Kabul. Uh, the rid of the government is, is almost non-existent in these places, and so uh, really uh, the government relies on U.S. military to step it up in those areas. Mm -hmm. Now, the uh, AP story on this attack also, I think, makes an interesting point. It says, Wednesday's attack pointed up what the military calls a squirting effect, and that is when Taliban fighters are driven, say, from Marja or from uh, uh, Kandahar, they uh, melt away into the countryside and then resurface elsewhere. And so since we don't have sufficient foreign troops in Afghanistan to uh, uh, take and then control uh, the entire country, uh, are we just in a, a kind of uh, whack-a-mole mode here where, you know, we can, we can take control of a certain area, but they just pop up elsewhere? absolutely in a, in a whack-a-mole sort of situation. And uh, those of us who are accustomed to thinking about Iraq uh, over the last few years, Afghanistan is very different, where in Iraq you can concentrate troops in a certain area because it's more of an urban country. So you can put a lot of troops in, in or around population centers, and that'll actually, um, you can actually affect the difference in that. But in Afghanistan, the population is so spread out across the rural countryside that it's really difficult to put too many troops in any one place and really have an effect, because the, the insurgency will just adapt to that and move to a different area. So you really need 
hundreds of thousands of troops in every uh, nook and corner of the country to really be able to stop the insurgents from moving from one point to the next. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Anand, uh, here in the United States, uh, there was an incident on Times Square in New York uh, last weekend. A suspect is in custody and reportedly is uh, providing a lot of information, both before and after he was given his Miranda rights. And uh, this man's name is Faisal Shahzad. And it's interesting because, uh, finally, the corporate media in this country is defining more carefully the different insurgent groups in both Pakistan and in Afghanistan. And what we're being told from the leaks from the interrogation to date are uh, it, it, it uh, represents that Shahzad uh, uh, got some training, not very much because his bomb-making skills are, are uh, say, sorely lacking, uh, but from the Pakistan Taliban. And uh, George Rohde, who uh, is a New York Times, I'm sorry, David Rohde, a New York Times reporter who was kidnapped uh, by the Pakistani Taliban and held for approximately uh, seven months, was on television last night. And uh, it was interesting to hear what what he had to say. And one of the elements that surprised me but uh, didn't uh, uh, give any pause or notice to Keith Olbermann during the interview is that he said that the Pakistani Taliban don't believe that al-Qaeda was responsible for the attacks of 9-11. And he said in passing they believe that uh, it was somehow concocted by the U.S. military. Now, I'm one of those crazy people who doesn't believe the 9-11 Commission report. Uh, I don't know exactly how it all happened, but I'm, I'm very skeptical of what the government has told us. And I found this a very interesting uh, comment, again, that wasn't really expanded on by Mr. Rohde. Uh, is that a common sense in Afghanistan and Pakistan, that al-Qaeda did not, in fact, uh, uh, cause the events of 9-11? That's a very common uh, point of view here um, in, both, in both countries, that uh, al-Qaeda was not involved. A lot of people believe that there was an inside job by the United States, the CIA, etc. That doesn't, uh, that's not limited just to uh, 9-11, by the way. A lot of the attacks that happen, especially in Pakistan, a lot of, we see a lot of suicide attacks, especially recently in, in cities like Peshawar, in crowded markets where a lot of civilians get killed. And a lot of Pakistanis don't believe that uh, al-Qaeda or the Taliban are behind this. They believe uh, the CIA or Mossad or Blackwater are behind this. Um, these kinds of uh, theories are rampant in these areas. Mm-hmm. Okay, very interesting. And what uh, are you picking up from the international media that you're able to access while you're in Dubai and from your sources uh, in Pakistan and Afghanistan about uh, Shahzad and this uh, uh, foiled attempt on a a terrorist attack in New York City? Well, just... um Reading what's coming out of New York uh, from the interrogation, uh, it does seem likely that he may have had contact with uh, groups in Pakistan, whether it be the Pakistan Taliban or Kashmiri groups. Um, and there's a lot of people who are coming through these areas um, uh, in the tribal areas of, of Pakistan who may be getting a little bit of training, who may be uh, even just speaking to people who are connected to, the, to these movements, uh, and then going back into uh, various areas like Europe, or even increasingly more so than the United States. Um, we still don't know to the extent of how much this constitutes a, a larger trend about of uh, the Pakistani Taliban trying to send 
attackers into the states. One thing to note though, is that there have been other uh, instances in recent months, most recently when there was a, uh, I believe there was a, a, a incident in the immigration center where a number of people were killed in New York, where the Pakistani Taliban, for instance, claimed responsibility for that, and they actually had nothing to do with it. So there's also a, a motivation on the part of the Pakistani insurgents to claim responsibility for things that are happening uh, in the states and increase their standing with the local population and with the local jihadi community. Sure. I understand that um, th- there are many layers here, and just because a group takes credit for something does not necessarily mean that they, uh, that they caused it. Anand Gopal is with us here on the Peter B. Collins Show, and I want to reference his website. It's uh, his name, A-N-A-N-D, and then G-O-P-A-L, anandgopal.com. And you can read his dispatches, which uh, we're about to discuss here on the podcast today. Uh, he, I think, is doing some very interesting reporting uh, and brings us some uh, issues and viewpoints that uh, don't surface in the mainstream media in this country. So, Anand, I want to go to uh, your post here of February 24th, uh, Pakistan Arrest Senior Taliban Leaders. And this opens up a whole area of recent coverage of Hamid Karzai in the American media. And Robert Dreyfus uh, from The Nation was on a recent podcast with us and was offering a contrasting view to the White House uh, perspective, which is to paint Karzai as kind of a, a nutcase. And certainly some of the things he said recently, that it was foreigners who caused the, uh, the uh, election fraud that uh, uh, gave him a new term last year, uh, there, there are a few things that he has said that uh, I think do fit the characterization or the caricature that is being promoted by the Obama White House. But Dreyfus had some interesting points, and that is that Karzai has been trying to uh, broker talks with Taliban leaders and that Pakistan arrested a key leader uh, toward uh, the uh, early part of February Um, who was about to engage in some sort of talks that might have been peace talks with President Karzai of Afghanistan. So what can you tell us? Was this uh, uh, a lack of of, uh, knowledge? Did the U.S. and and Pakistan not know what Karzai was up to? Or did they in fact know what he was doing and decide to interfere with his efforts to find common ground with the Taliban and, and find a way to... Uh, move out of a combat uh, uh, mode? Well, it's all very murky. Even three, four months after the fact, we don't know exactly why this, this Taliban leader, his name is uh, Mullah Bradar, who is, uh, at the time of his arrest, essentially the day-to-day leader of the Taliban, um, the number two overall in the movement. Uh, we don't know exactly why he was arrested, but it, uh, prevailing theory is that he was involved in some way in exploring negotiations or the idea of negotiations with elements of the Afghan government, particularly with uh, President Karzai and his family. Uh, and Pakistan most likely uh, looked at this and uh, saw him doing acting unilaterally or independently of, of Pakistan. Now, you have to remember Pakistan has um, played a pretty major role in the formation of the Taliban and mm-hmm. has supported the Taliban for a number of years. And uh, there's many in, uh, in the Pakistani leadership who may have saw uh, this move as something as sort of uh, the Taliban sort of acting independently of them and, uh, the, and they, the Pakistanis not having uh, control of the negotiation process. Uh, the American 
point of view on all this is even murkier. Um, we see the public uh, declarations from Washington that they really don't necessarily support the sort of negotiations uh, that were beginning to happen, which is leadership-level negotiations between the Taliban and the Afghan government. Um, what they do support is sort of low-level rank-and-file rec- uh, reintegration. So these are fighters on the ground who may you know, decide that they don't want to fight anymore and go and join the government. But the actual issue of reconciliation between the leaderships of the government and the insurgency, that's something that, at least publicly, the U.S. has not come around to. And, Anand, doesn't this uh, appear to contradict the sentiments that uh, have been stated frequently by both General McChrystal and President Obama that uh, this will require a political solution, that there isn't a military outcome uh, favorable to the United States uh, in Afghanistan, no matter how long we stay there, and that uh, the talk last year was that we needed to shift the, uh, the funding uh, more into uh, political negotiations and nation-building and less into military, yet the supplementals have been 90% military and only 10 or 15% diplomatic or, or uh, State Department-type uh, activities. So uh, why are we getting these mixed messages when uh, the U.S. viewpoint, at least publicly, is that uh, we need a political solution, and clearly that would involve talking to the Taliban? Absolutely right, and I think this is a glaring contradiction in the in the, uh, the Washington's policy uh, because up to this point we've heard again and again that there is no military solution, but they're not willing to take well, what that implies to its logical conclusion, which means that you have to actually have a political settlement between the warring sides. I think what the hope is amongst a lot of the policymakers in Washington is that we can put enough military pressure on the Taliban so that in the next 18 months or two years, um, through the surge of troops and through these various offenses that we're seeing, put enough pressure on them so that some of the individual leaders and some, and, and some of the rank and file will start to peel away and will start to join the, uh, the government or will come to, come to the government and there'll be some sort of negotiation. Um, that's very different, though, than actually approaching the leadership and sitting together with them and with the Afghan government and with the other parties involved and trying to hash out an agreement to end the war. And uh, this, this sort of tension is... Uh, Exist and seen through, partly through, as what you mentioned before, the tensions that are there between President Karzai and, and Washington, because Karzai is pursuing this track, uh, whereas Washington isn't on board. Mm-hmm. And uh, what what can you tell us about the level of troops, U.S. troops in Afghanistan, uh, based on what the president told us last December first about his decision to add more troops? Are we approaching the one hundred thousand level now? We're getting there. I think by this summer we'll have all the troops that he had pledged uh, last year. Um, and at that point we'll have the full 100,000 100, U.S. troops, plus there's also 20,000, 30,000 uh, non-U.S. troops that are in combat roles. So we're getting close to up to 130,000, 140,000 overall. Mm-hmm. Now that is against this promise that he's uh, hoping to start withdrawing troops uh, just about 14 months from now, which uh, I have a hard time believing. And uh, the other factoid, a listener emailed me with this information just the other day, and it's confirmed by the Army Times website, that the 82nd Airborne is going to be 100% deployed in Afghanistan uh, by the end of this year. Uh, now, that's just one, uh, one military group, to be sure, 
but it does seem to be a very high concentration from uh, that that one battalion. And so I, I'm just curious if uh, if the scoreboard is accurate. <laughs> Well, I've heard that as well, and um, I, yeah, I think that's accurate. And this is the this is the other issue. A lot of Afghans ask this uh, as well because they see um, troops coming. For every month now, we're seeing more and more troops coming as part of the initial pledge of deployment, um, and to expect that by July, June, or July of next year, that some of them will start leaving. Um, really, sort of stretches the uh, um, what, what one could believe to, to its limits. Indeed. Now let's turn to your uh, dispatch, The Battle for Marja, which you posted on March 8th, and again, it's on your website, anandgopal.com. Now, uh, it's interesting because in the uh, the weeks preceding this, uh, there was a kind of PR buildup here in the United States, and afterward, we learned that Marja is not that significant of a, a city. It's not even that big of a city. It appears to be a market town, uh, which is a regional hub, but is not a, uh, uh, a center or a, a, an urban-like area. So uh, with that receding in, in your rearview mirror, Anand, uh, was Marja significant in any way? Strategically, Marja was insignificant. Uh, it doesn't change the course of the war at all. Um, even if they had gone in there and met all of their objectives, I don't think it would have changed the course of the war. There's right now today in Helmand, there's Helmand's made up of, I think, maybe 12 districts, of which four or five of them are completely controlled by the Taliban, and the other seven or eight are almost entirely controlled by the Taliban, except for the capital. So Marja is in the latter category. Um, and there's four or five other districts that are how Marjo was uh, six months ago. That's how they are today, where the Taliban uh, operates completely openly. Um, government officials cannot go there. Uh, independent observers cannot go there. And, uh, you know, it begs the question why one would choose Marja versus any of these other districts that are under Taliban control. Um, all of them are equally uh, sort of rural, um, not very populated. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, I think it speaks to the larger issue. Of, um, my sense is that the, the offensive in Marja had more to do with convincing people back home in the, in, in the U.S. that we're moving in the right direction than it had to do with any battlefield reality uh, in Afghanistan. Indeed. And uh, they, they've they gone to great lengths to announce this, uh, this effort to uh, control Kandahar. And I do consider it to be a significant uh, uh, urban-like area. Uh, but it, it strikes me that by announcing these uh, initiatives uh, in advance, that this is carefully orchestrated and that the military leaders know that this is being done for consumption in the United States, not for strategic advance of the uh, announced objectives in Afghanistan. Well, that's right. I, well, to play devil's advocate, I think they would say that we want to announce it in advance so that the enemy will flee. Um, they don't want to get bogged down in a firefight. And what they were hoping would happen in Marja was that they would broadcast widely enough that uh, there'll be no Taliban left. But, of course, the, the other effect of that is to get people back home uh, thinking about the offensive. And really, if you look at the way Marja was done, uh, nothing that could have happened would have uh, led people to believe that it would have been a failure because nobody can go in there and actually see what's happening after the military has gone in. So they'll broadcast very widely that this is a very important area and we're going to go in with a lot of troops. 
they go in and then there's silence after that. And so we're led to assume, at least people back home in the States are led to assume that this has been a success. And I think that's one of the uh, benefits of broadcasting it very widely uh, in the get-go. And is the same true of Kandahar? Because there are more uh, foreign people and uh, contacts there, including reporters. Am I, am I correct? Uh, there's no reporters living in the city, but it's easier to go into the city and report. So it'll be a little harder for them to do this in Kandahar. Mm-hmm. But isn't Kandahar more of a, a hub of commerce with uh, international uh, contacts? Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of traffic between Dubai and, and Kandahar and, and also from Pakistan. It's the second biggest city in the country, and it's certainly um, politically uh, the second, either the second or first most important urban center in the country. Mm-hmm. And is the highway that was built with American taxpayer dollars between Kabul and Kandahar, is, is that still functional, and is it... Uh, uh, is it safe for NATO and U.S. forces to transit? It's functional. Uh, it's not safe. Uh, there are convoys to go um, up and down the highway, but typically um, there's uh, what they call route clearance package, packages, which are just very slow-moving convoys that stop at every culvert and every ditch and get out and look and see if there's a uh, roadside bomb in there, um, patrol up and down the highway. So it's not a normal situation. In fact, most of the civilian traffic, they typically can't even move uh, up and down the highway for very long because it's taken up by convoys. So if you drive along uh, that highway, you'll see on both sides where it's flanked by deserts, you'll see uh, uh, cars driving on both sides in the desert. So it's sort of ironic because of all the money that's been put into building the highway, but the highway is mostly used by the convoys, uh, which means that the people that it was intended to, to affect the ordinary civilians end up not even using it. Very interesting. Anything else that you'd like to add that we might not know about from reading the American papers uh, about uh, this uh, focus on Kandahar presently? Well, I, I think uh, the Kandahar offense is going to be a little different than Marja, where Marja was sort of uh, um, thousands of troops coming in into the town uh, in one sort of uh, at one time, and a very splashy sort of effect, where Kandahar is a much more uh, measured, slower um, operation, where there's various different neighborhoods in the city and there's various districts surrounding the city, and it's going to take three, four months for the troops to move into each of these neighborhoods and districts and sort of uh, set up shop and uh, clear it of insurgents. Anand, next I want to talk about your dispatch from uh, April 19, entitled The Battle for Pakistan, North Waziristan. Now, to most Americans, uh, th- this is all very murky, and uh, there's, there's some people who are aware that there are two of these tribal uh, rural provinces, uh, North and South Waziristan, uh, but most Americans uh, can't make a distinction between the two. Can you help us out a little bit just in general, uh, about the conditions and how they may uh, be different in North Waziristan and South Waziristan. Sure. The North and South Waziristan are part of what's called the federally administered tribal areas, um, which are um, a section of Pakistan which is, uh, unlike the rest of the country, it doesn't have a local government uh, per se. It's uh, administered directly by uh, Islamabad. 
and um, it's run by tribal law, so instead of the normal civil law that uh, exists in, a, in other uh, parts of the country. So it's a very different sort of uh, rule, and it's the most uh, impoverished, backwards part of uh, Pakistan, and particularly the Wazirstans. And uh, the, if in, in this part of the country, there's very little development, uh, very few jobs. Most, a lot of the working-age males are either fighting or they've moved to places like Dubai. Um, and it's been a hotbed. <coughs> excuse me, it's been a hotbed for uh, the Taliban for a number of years. Uh, in North Waziristan, um, is it's the hub for Al Qaeda, for a lot of other uh, foreign militants, and also for an Afghan group called the Haqqani Network, which is mm-hmm. one of the um, most powerful Afghan insurgent groups. Whereas South Waziristan is um, the headquarters of the Pakistani Taliban. And, and and let me read uh, a couple of uh, paragraphs here from your, your dispatch, because I think it, it's helpful for people. You reference the Haqqani Network, and you say, besides the Haqqanis, the largest militant coalition in North Waziristan is headed by Hafiz Gul Bahadur of the Mada Kel clan of the Uth, help me out here, Uthmanzai warrior. I'm sorry, Uthmanzai wazir. <laughs> Uh, Bahadur does not have the track record of his collaborators in the Haqqani clan, but he has something they don't, a strong tribal base in the rugged mountains between Miram Shah and the Afghan border. This provides important strategic leverage over militants who must traverse his territory to reach Afghanistan. So to what extent is uh, uh, Bahadur and and his clan uh, really controlling this? And and to what extent do they coordinate their activities with the Pakistani military and separately the intelligence agency, the ISI of Pakistan? Uh, Bahadur and, and his allies have uh, struck a deal with uh, the ISI and the Pakistani military to sort of not really do any of their militant activities uh, within Pakistan or directed towards uh, Pakistani interests, rather to direct their fire against the Americans in Afghanistan. And so long as they do that, um, they enjoy a good rapport with the Pakistani intelligence services. Um, and they do coordinate with the Afghan Taliban, particularly with the Haqqani network. Um, they provide suicide bombers. In fact, most of the suicide attackers, I would say, in Afghanistan tend to come from uh, North Waziristan, and many of them come from Bahadur's uh, group and some of the groups that are allied with Bahadur. And and uh, what happens when American forces cross over into this region of Pakistan from Afghanistan? I have not seen any recent coverage, but uh, a couple of years ago, there were well-documented incursions by uh, U.S. helicopter uh, advance teams and even some ground troops uh, that had crossed the Pakistani border without the apparent knowledge of approval or approval of the central government. Uh, that's right. It's, uh, these are special forces uh, that have gone in for um, some targeted assassinations and uh, other things. But to my knowledge, this hasn't happened in recent years. This is more of a feature uh, in the years, early years after 2001. Uh, part of the problem is that what's happened since 2001 till now is that North Waziristan has almost completely slipped out of the control of the Pakistani government. It's almost entirely run by the various Taliban groups, such as Bahadur or or Haqqani. And so, whereas before, U.S. troops might be able to cross over and still be in friendly territory on the other side, and then use that to launch any sort of operation, that's much more difficult today. Mm -hmm. 
And let me read one more uh, uh, entry here. Militants in North Waziristan have tended to be less fractious than their cousins in South Waziristan, largely by avoiding divisive tribalism. But the divisions among North Waziristan militants are important. For example, Rasul Khan leads a group of fighters who chafe at Bahadur's prominent role in the agency. And Khan's support for Uzbek fighters, who've angered many Pakistani militants, is one reason. But you add... Khan's operation also seems to have a strong criminal element that may seek greater autonomy. Now, I consider this very important, uh, Anand, to try to understand this array of different groups, uh, mostly armed militants, but they're not all fighting on the same script uh, and and with the same motivations. That's right. It's, it's actually an extraordinarily complicated situation, especially... Uh, in the tribal areas, even more so than Afghanistan. Um, if you want a, a sort of uh, Cliff Notes version of who's fighting whom, uh, there are basically three different types of groups uh, in these areas. One type of group is uh, those who fight primarily against the Pakistani state. And uh, this is uh, a group like such as the TTP, which is um, who the Times Square bombers uh, accused of being associated with. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is also al-Qaeda. Uh, and then there's... Uh, other Pakistani groups who don't fight against the Pakistani state, they just fight in Afghanistan against the Americans. And that would be, for example, Bahadur, who you mentioned before. The third group is the Afghan Taliban. Now, these are Afghans, not Pakistanis, and they also don't fight against the Pakistani state. And moreover, they tend to be supported by the Pakistani intelligence services. So let me move next to your uh, dispatch that was published by the McClatchy chain here in the U.S., uh, dated April 27. U.S. plan to arm Afghan militia founders. And this is uh, taken from the so-called surge playbook in Iraq, at least to some extent. And I I find this very dangerous and a bit of a replay of our support for the Mujahideen against the Soviet occupation in the 1980s. And that is that we are passing out cash and, it appears, uh, military supplies, Well, no, you say here they don't receive weapons, so I'll pull back on that. But they're receiving money and, uh, in some cases, training uh, from the U.S. And my concern, Anand, is that once we activate uh, these different uh, tribal groups, that we are creating the seeds for ongoing uh, civil war, uh, assuming that someday we actually leave Afghanistan. province called Kunduz, which is in the north, uh, there's a lot of commanders who um, were essentially warlords uh, and fought against each other during the Civil War in the 90s. Uh, and after the U.S. invasion, a lot of them were disarmed and they were integrated, some of them were integrated into the Afghan security forces. To give you an example, uh, there's a province in the north of the country called Kunduz, where there are a lot of militia commanders who are former warlords who, uh, during the 90s, took part in the Civil War. A lot of these people were disarmed uh, after the U.S. invasion. Uh, Some of them became integrated into the Afghan security forces. Others sort of retired from politics. But what's happened recently in this um, push to arm or or to support uh, the formation of militias is a lot of these guys started to uh, resurrect their old uh, uh, networks. And so some of them have actually been very uh, oppressive, according to the local population. There's been some militia commanders who we've supported in the last few months 
who've actually gone and uh, raped people, have looted, have uh, stolen things, have killed people, and really uh, are starting to act even worse uh, than the Taliban that they're meant to fight against. So this is a real problem, and if it's getting this bad while we're here, you can imagine the dangers what will happen if we leave. Well, and, and I'm struck by this effort to, in some ways, replicate the, the surge in Iraq. <clears throat> and there, there were different components there. First of all, uh, you, you have primarily three uh, ethnic groups in Iraq. And here in Afghanistan, these tribal groups are, are much more uh, diffuse. Uh, there, there are many, there are more of them, and, and they have different interests and languages and, and culture. Uh, and and the other issue is that we've seen with the recent uh, upsurge of, of violence in Iraq, uh, both before and after the uh, disputed election, that uh, the the effects of uh, the awakening councils uh, are diminishing, that scores are being settled, and that really it's the the uh, segregation. Uh, some might use the term apartheid of Sunni from Shia in Iraq that uh, did dampen down the violence uh, over the past two years. And so my impression is that uh, these efforts uh, are, are short-term when you try to buy support from different groups, and that it's much more complicated and, and appears to be uh, untenable in Afghanistan because of the complexities I just referred to. That, that's right. Uh, just to give you an example, I once uh, visited a, a, a village in the south and asked to speak to the main tribal elder of the village, and uh, six different men from six different houses came out and claimed to be the tribal elder. <laughs> uh, this, is the, uh, this is the sort of problem we face here, is that the tribal system is so fractured after uh, 30 years of war, uh, it's not a cohesive uh, entity, tribes. Uh, and so when the U.S. goes and uh, gives money to one tribal elder to form a militia, there's four other or five other guys who want their own militias that'll be for- that would to be formed, and you're intervening in local dynamics that you don't always understand, and um, the effects of that we may not see today or tomorrow, but down the line uh, we will see that. And if you could, give us a, just a quick sketch of the Shinwari tribe, because you profile them uh, to some extent in this story, and uh, it, it points up all the things we've just talked about. Well, the Shinwari tribe is uh, one of the larger tribes in Afghanistan. They're located uh, in the east near the Pakistani border. Uh, a few months ago, um, one of the uh, tribal elders um, uh, raised a little militia on his own and uh, attacked the Taliban um, and killed a couple of Taliban commanders. And this caught the attention of the U.S. and particularly the U.S. Special Forces, so they came in and gave money to this elder and, uh, and worked to support him in, in building his militia. Now, what happened is, as, as I mentioned before, he, he's not the only elder who represents Shinwaris. Shinwaris is made up of many smaller clans and smaller tribes, and each of them have their own elders or leaders. And so uh, after uh, this one elder sort of uh, uh, raised his position or his stature from uh, being connected with the Americans and getting all this money, um, this caused some rivalries and jealousies with the other command, uh, other elders, and the place erupted into a mini-tribal war. And uh, I went and visited a, a, a month ago and saw the area, one of the main areas where the Shinwaris live, and uh, it was completely destroyed. Uh, there were houses on both sides of the road were, were gutted and, and bombed out. Uh, the market was shuttered. Nobody was uh, walking around in the town, um, and really it just descended into a tribal war. 
And uh, you report U.S. officials have rewarded the tribe uh, for their alliance with us with $200,000 in cash. Now, that's not a lot of money in U.S. terms, but it probably goes pretty far there. What, what, what would that money be used for? They just pass it around and share the graft? Or is this intended to rebuild uh, the destroyed areas you just described? Well, the money was given before anything was destroyed. Uh, when the money was given, everything was intact and everyone was getting along well. It's after one of these elders got to $200,000 that uh, these jealousies and these um, other disputes came to the surface and people started fighting. Uh, I asked the, the, the main federal elder what um, he got the money for, and he said that uh, it was given to him so that he can rebuild his or you know, do some development projects in the village. But when I went to visit the village, I didn't see any development projects, and the locals there swear that not much time has been spent. So we don't know what's actually happened to the money, but uh, in theory it should be uh, for rebuilding or developing the community. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, Anand, again, all these stories are uh, available on your website, anandgopal.com. Tell us about Kayum Zakir. Kayum Zakir is now the de facto leader of the Taliban after Mullah Omar, who's in hiding and uh, who doesn't really take part in day-to-day activities. And Zakir is an interesting case because he was uh, somebody, he was a, a Taliban military commander uh, during the Taliban government, and uh, after the U.S. invasion, he, he was arrested and taken to Guantanamo and spent a number of years there. He was released uh, and then very quickly joined his, uh, the Taliban again. and rose up the ranks very quickly, and now he's pretty much in charge of uh, day-to-day operations. Mm-hmm. And uh, similar to some of the <laughs> others we're seeing, you describe him as coming from a, a relatively wealthy background, a well-off Pashtun family in Helmand province. That's right. Um, and he uh, went and studied in a madrasa or a religious school uh, in Pakistan, in Quetta, um, and uh, joined the Taliban fairly uh, at a fairly young age, um, but he's known as a pretty smart uh, battlefield commander. Uh, he's um, even before he was uh, promoted to this current position, uh, uh, maybe two months ago, he was still uh, in charge of military operations throughout the south. So he was the main guy who was um, basically directing Taliban uh, resistance against the U.S. offensive in Marja, for example. Um, and he's going to play a pretty important role in the upcoming offensive in Kandahar as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just reading through here, you report that uh, Zakir actually uh, gave himself up uh, to General Dostum, and uh, he was in, then turned over to the Americans and sent to Guantanamo. Uh, so this is very interesting because he would have been released uh, under the Bush administration, and it's, you know, they, they've made all this noise since Obama took power about uh, detainees returning to the battlefield. Um, but it appears that uh, he made no secret of his history and his intentions. So why did the U.S. release him, if you know? Well, when he was in Guantanamo, he feigned uh, innocence and he pretended to be a uh a low-ranking conscript, and basically he said that he was forced to fight and he wasn't that important, which wasn't true because during the Taliban time he was actually a very important uh, commander who was fighting against the Northern Alliance. But um, what's remarkable in his case and in the case of the people who were in Guantanamo who shouldn't be there is that it's typically 
very easy to find out who the, who these people are uh, if you did a little bit of investigative work. That wasn't done, and so Zakir was released, or he was transferred to Afghan custody uh, in 2007, and then shortly re- released thereafter. That's war correspondent Anand Gopal. Visit his website at anandgopal.com. He's working on a book right now. Doesn't have a title, doesn't have a publication date, but we'll keep you posted. Many times on the Peter B. Collins Show, you've heard me say that we're sponsored by the Organic Wine Company, and now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Well, today I'm pleased to bring you, right here in our studio, the founder and owner of the Organic Wine Company, Veronique Raskin. Veronique, welcome back to the Peter B. Collins Show. Thank you, Peter. How are you doing today? I'm doing excellent, particularly since you started playing this music. You've got my, uh, <laughs> my, my blood going and my body moving. Great. Well, Veronique, first of all, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Did you grow up uh, stomping grapes in France? So what did you say, snopping? S- stomping. Oh, stomping. Oh, yes, yeah. absolutely, yes. At, well, the, actually, at the press. I, right, exactly. <laughs> no, but I do remember picking up uh, picking up uh, grapes at the harvest when I was 10 or 11, and I was uh, uh, thrilled and also exhausted. It's a, it's a, it's a tough job. Mm-hmm. But we had, uh, we had horses at that time, so that was so exciting to be bringing all the, our collection to the horse uh, uh, chariot. Uh, but, uh, yes, I'm sure that a lot of your listeners know the south of France. Mm-hmm. I was born in Toulouse, which is um, the, uh, the Languedoc area, mm-hmm. is quite well known for any number of reasons, uh, great cultural uh, medieval t- uh, treasures, a uh, city of Carcassonne and uh, places like that. So it's, it's between Bordeaux and Provence. Right. Not very well known, but absolutely a sensational uh, landscape and... Uh, uh, the the cradle of a lot of uh, very uh, good wines now. Beautiful so, yeah. area. I've just visited once, but yeah. uh, the local wines were terrific. And it's one of the things that I enjoy about France mm-hmm. is that every community has a, yes. a little negociant or a, mm-hmm. a wine store, mm-hmm. and you bring your own container and you go in and and you choose. Uh, you know, what the latest releases are from mm-hmm. local makers. Yes, yes. And uh, I've never had a bad wine that way. I know. It's quite amazing. Yep. It is, and not expensive. Right. It's, it's not the Chateau something or other. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's a wine from the, from the uh, proprietor of the local inn uh, who uh, is extremely palatable. Yes, mm-hmm. I, I know. Now, Veronique, uh, I think it's appropriate to call you a visionary because the organic movement has gained momentum in the last 15 years. Yes. But you saw the need for organic wines 30 years ago. So that makes you a visionary, and I hope that the profits have caught up with uh, <laughs> the cost of your vision. Uh, they, they're starting to, yes. I, I didn't used to consider myself that, and then uh, in, in recent weeks I thought, well, maybe actually I qualify. Uh, because, yes, 30 years ago, visiting my, my family on the La Bousquette uh, property, uh, which has been in my family for over 200 years, I was, I, I really was stricken by, uh, I, w- I had a hit, and the hit occurred as I was drinking the wine that my grandfather was making, which was organically grown, which was uh, extremely radical at the time, nobody else was doing this, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I noted that I could drink that wine without getting a headache, yeah. which was quite uh, a momentous, uh, momentous uh, event for me. 
And um, so, so basically, up until that point, you really have a red wine no. and a glass or two, yeah. and you were you were in headache mode for a day. I was just not feeling well, not enjoying wines yeah. until I started drinking the La Bousquette wine, mm -hmm. and I thought that was so so peculiar that I would be able to enjoy those wines, and so that got my attention. And of course, the other thing uh, that got my attention is that those wines were made um, utilizing the principles of organic viticulture, mm -hmm. i.e. without pesticides, herbicides, etc., and, and very, very uh, simply uh, made in the cellar. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, I'm, um, I'm a very old-fashioned girl, and I really love the connection with my family, with my roots, with my, with my country, and thought that was such a, a deep-seated uh, human need, mm -hmm. nothing terribly... Uh, new concept. This is not a new concept, but I was uh, living in America, and and I put all that together, and I thought, wait, wait a second, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if I would um, uh, bring back to America, to California of all places, a wine that would be uh, minimally chemically um, uh, manipulated, if right. you wish, mm -hmm. because I can't possibly be the only person on this planet who's, who gets a headache when they drink wine. And it's got to have something to do with conventional agriculture. I know a lot of people who shy away uh, from red wine because, oh, it gives me a headache. I get a hangover, even if, if I only yes, have a glass or two. And, and it's gotten worse, in fact, over the years. And I have a theory about it. Is that's because we're so over-chemicalized over and mm -hmm. over-stressed you know, from, from household items to... Uh, to, to gasoline, to everything, our body is continuously uh, um, prompted to, to triggered into a um, um, negative response to those mm -hmm. chemicals. And so then it takes very little, takes half a glass of wine for people to go overboard. And the unfortunate thing is that they, they usually blame, blame themselves. There's got to be something wrong with me if I can no longer have enjoy a glass of wine with my, with my meal. And the mm -hmm. good news is that no, uh, there isn't necessarily something wrong with you. That could be the case. Uh, but a lot of our uh, clients um, have uh, been uh, restored to the joy of drinking uh, wine responsibly, as I did, mm -hmm. uh, through by drinking wines that are made with organic grapes. So that tells you... Um, that tells you uh, something important. So the the second reason is that I wanted to share that find that found uh, with other people, and um, and and that, and I was persuaded, given my healing background, that if uh, we were to have a future, it would have to be uh, an organic future. We would have to transform the way we looked at the world from this, uh, you know, let's uh, let's kill it if it moves. Uh, and, and <clears throat> sustainability is one of the key points that mm -hmm. uh, organic farmers of fruits and vegetables uh, yes. embrace. Mm -hmm. And is is there an issue of sustainability in viticulture, in, in growing grapes for oh, totally. winemaking? Oh, oh totally. Uh, people, for some reason, don't think of grapes as a, as a produce. So these days, people, certainly in, in California, are fully aware of the fact that their strawberries, tomatoes, and all these other things uh, get sprayed. And all it takes is to uh, drive around some areas to see those guys with their little astronaut-looking kind of thing, <laughs> you know, yeah. protected from head to toe, and spraying this stuff, you know, which then they tell you is just fine for everybody, and the, and the produce is sprayed on. doesn't make a lot of sense. And so grapes are also sprayed quite heavily. And it's not good for the people who do it, for the, uh, for the people who are around it. It can't possibly be good. For, it's not good for the earth. The stuff gets into the water. 
underneath. It kills wildlife. You know, in general, it's not a good idea, and um, and it's not necessary. You can you can uh, you can go over to you can transform to organic uh, viticulture. Viticulture meaning the the art of growing grapes mm-hmm. um, uh, organically uh, fairly easily. Yeah. It makes an it takes an effort and a commitment, but it's worth it. It certainly is. Yes. And uh, you've had a lot of copycats. Uh, there are California winemakers now who have embraced organic uh, yeah. uh, grape growing and yep. processing. Yep. Uh, and tell me a little bit about how you view that. Uh, is that compliment to you, or do you see it as purely competitive that they're copying you? Well, um, first of all, really, uh, I'm not. I'm. Uh, I embrace the collaborative uh, model very strongly, um, uh, always. So I don't necessarily view them as my uh, competitor. Mm-hmm. No, I, I am mean, you, not... you were the trailblazer who paved the we way. We were, yes. And before that, I really stand on the shoulders of uh, uh, very unknown, incredibly courageous uh, men and women farmers in the south of France, because this started in Europe, mm-hmm. who for decades um, uh, pr- previous to me um, became very radical in their in their um, in their growing of of their uh, wine out of love with no approval from the outside world believe me but just out of love for themselves and for, for the earth so I'm uh, I'm a visionary in the sense of bringing it bringing the stuff over here uh, from a particular point of view but I wouldn't be here without those incredibly uh, courageous uh, people mm-hmm. uh, so um, I'm not threatened. Uh, by people who make uh, good wines that are organically grown and who are respectful of the standards. Mm-hmm. That I find uh, very, uh, very um, admirable, and, and I and, like them. And yes. there, there's been some greenwashing yeah. where people me. use yes. the organic yeah. name yes. uh, in yes. a way where it's not uh, applicable. Yeah. So uh, how, do you, how do yes. you view standards, and does the U.S. Uh, Department of Agriculture have appropriate standards for what is organic and what doesn't qualify? You're right. What does concern me is the greenwashing. Uh, people who uh, discovered green about a year ago and uh, embrace it because it's, uh, you know, it's a cool thing to do. And uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't do anybody any good at all. If uh, your listeners want to help uh, the, the credibility of uh, organic viticulture, which I certainly hope they do, they need to go to their stores and demand wines that are made with grapes that are certified organically grown. Ask that those, um, those wines have a, a, a third party verify that they were made with organic grapes. That is a huge step to solidify and and give and give uh, as I say credibility and honor honor the people who work extremely hard at maintaining those standards and the quality mm-hmm. and uh, please do not settle for a wine buyer saying to you well it's kind of like all wines are organic anyway and these well you know the salesperson tells me that perhaps maybe sometimes yes they uh, grow the stuff organically, but I wouldn't worry about you. And, you know, that's greenwashing, and that's ex- that's mm-hmm. extremely offensive to everybody. Uh, that's uh, that's re- really gets gets my goat, and doesn't help anybody, and doesn't help your listeners either, and doesn't help people who want to to drink an organically grown wine. Right. So I would that would be part of my answer here. Okay. 
Now, Veronique, in a moment, you are going to reveal for our listeners an opportunity for them to join the Peter B. Collins Organic Wine Club. Yes. But before we get to that, can we take a little tour of yes. your cellars and give people an idea of the, the range of wines yes. that you offer? Because yes. uh, you have invited me to some tastings, and yes. uh, I've uh, rated your cellar a few times. Yes. And I'm very impressed with the array of wines that you yes. make. And you are, are now offering organic wines from France, Italy, Spain, Portugal, and New Zealand. Yes. So you are really... And more. And, and more. more? Yes. I am just so thrilled. In the last uh, few weeks, uh, we have increased uh, very carefully our portfolio. We now... You, you're right. I, I started off with uh, a strong, um, a strong uh, connection to the, to the southern... Uh, southern uh, winemakers. So mm -hmm. we have a lot of wines from the Languedoc. Uh, then we have some from Spain and Italy. And most recently, uh, we've gone to South America and found some wonderful, just absolutely wonderful little Argentinian wines. Mm. Uh, we have a couple of South Africans. We have, what X? Oh, yes. Uh, oh, a fantastic collection of, yes, Italian. I just said mm -hmm. that. And last but not least, we have now uh, joined forces with an old friend of mine, Brian Fitzpatrick, uh, who uh, makes uh, a wine in California. So this is local, mm -hmm. uh, local, local, uh, green, absolutely. This guy is a real McCoy. Green, vegan, and certified organic. So uh, we, we really can. Um, I'm so thrilled because I now have an array of wine that are very, very affordably priced, by the way. Indeed. Uh, yeah. Very carefully selected. I don't bring in uh, anything that I don't like, and that doesn't pass the test of my sommelier, mm -hmm. and also people who just are just normal people with uh, normal palates, nothing, uh, you know, because this is really uh, for the people, by the people, not to be too, uh, too political here, which I'm not. But what I'm trying to say is that for us, uh, for where I come from, Wine is something that you enjoy a glass or two with each meal. It's not something that you use as a buzz. It's part of it's part of life, mm -hmm. and it celebrates life. Indeed, and it adds to uh, adds to the the food pairing. So we have a very nice portfolio. I invite you to go visit our wine store, and, and that's uh, online. www.theorganicwinecompany.com. Okay. If you have any problem finding us, call me at 415-256-8888 or one eight 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 eco wine and we'll help you find what uh, what you uh, you might be interested in. And now, let me put you on the spot. How many different labels, uh, different uh, varietals are you currently offering? At the moment, we are probably have 70 to 80 different yeah. uh, wines. So you, you have plenty to choose from. Mm -hmm. And we're continuously looking for really a great great value and and all of our uh that's the, what excites me is that uh, in drinking those wines you really are supporting the spirit of the thing uh, all our wines are made by small uh, winemakers small family properties i mean we're talking small 20 acres or something mm -hmm. in various parts of the world people who do this out of love uh, and and you can really distinctly uh, taste and feel uh, their their soul and their different uh, their unique spirit as you drink their wine. So it's it's taking a tour, you know. You have the certainty that these wines are made respectfully, mm -hmm. but you never know what you're going to find in the in the bottle. So that's really exciting. And uh, you connect with the people who are 
who are making the wines in a very unique way. Well, I, I want to expand on something you just said, mm -hmm. because uh, I am a daily consumer of wine. Yep. I, I love it, and uh, I do have a glass or two every evening. Mm -hmm. And to me, the exciting part of it is that every bottle is different. Yes. Even uh, produced in the same region, yeah. or even things that may have come from the same vineyard in different years. Mm -hmm. And so that, to me, is so much more interesting oh, than, than beer or, or mm -hmm. hard liquor. And, and I do occasionally drink mm -hmm. other things. But for me, wine is interesting because of the complexities and because of the whole variety of tastes that hit my taste buds. Absolutely. You know, wine is a work of art. It's not the equivalent of Valium. It's a work of art. It's like a cathedral. It's like a painting. Mm -hmm. It's like a piece of music. It's something that you relate to in a, you know, with all of your senses and, and, and your heart. So if you drink an organically grown wine, then even more so. Uh, it's not plasticized. This is not uh, Teflon type of thing. This is not uh, silicon mm -hmm. um, uh, reviewed and, and corrected by Hollywood. This is you really are in touch with, uh, with the, the real persons that I've uh, contributed to the wine. Mm -hmm. And and so it's a, it's a growth process for you as well. It's a it's an emotional and and uh, sensorial uh, growth process. And in so doing you you're you're contributing to a movement that is so uh, uh, critical right mm -hmm. now to to be uh, uh, to be uh, to be promoted. So really you uh, on allie le, le le plaisir et le, le devoir et le plaisir. In other words, uh, you're uh, you know killing various birds with a, the same stone, which is a horrible <laughs> expression. What I'm saying is that you're adding pleasure to your life yeah. uh, while doing good by the world and for the world if you drink organically and turn your friends on to it. So. Now, you and your team have been working for months to put together the Peter B. Collins Organic Wine Club. Yes, sir. And today we are delighted to announce this to our listeners. Yep. And let me just begin by saying that you have been a stalwart sponsor of the Peter B. Collins Show. Yes. In our syndicated radio form and now as a podcast. And I'm very grateful for that. And uh, I appreciate it and I enjoy the association because... I feel very comfortable with what you offer. Yes. It's a product that I use and enjoy mm -hmm. and can recommend to my listeners uh, without any reservation. Yes. And also, uh, just so everything is up and clear for people, uh, you pay me a modest commission yes. when people purchase wines uh, and mention the Peter B. Collins Show. And likewise, with the Wine Club, uh, we'll receive a small commission, and we certainly appreciate that. It's my pleasure. But I, I believe, you know, in this as a partnership. Absolutely. And I'm delighted. Uh, you know, I don't recommend tires or uh, television sets <laughs> to my listeners, but this is something that I, I know and use and care about, yeah. and I can wholeheartedly embrace and endorse what you offer. Wholeheartedly is the right, right term right Coming now. Coming right with out. What, with what, uh, <laughs> with uh, what drinking wine is associated with. In terms of uh, benefiting your and your I'm heart in that health. I'm in the heart health age group now, Absolutely. so I take my medicine seriously. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us how the wine club works and how people can get started. Uh, very simple. Either you give us a call and um, tell us uh, you um, uh, you're a friend of uh, Peter, or you go on uh, online, and what you're going to do is receive three bottles of wine each month for forty nine ninety nine plus shipping. Mm -hmm. And will include uh, notes and pairing notes, and uh, so you know you know how to m best enjoy these wines. 
And uh, that's really quite simple. Three bottles are is very easy to drink. Uh, the advantage is enormous. You always have something on hand, A, to drink, or mm -hmm. B, to uh, share with other people, a last-minute present that is sure to to please. We select those wines uh, to, to give you a sense of... Uh, of uh, variety, mm -hmm. and um, so they will come from uh, from all these regions, or they will be local, whatever. Uh, but they, um, I, I think that uh, you, you'll enjoy all of them, and they they have in common that you can uh, drink them on on a regular basis and not get tired of them because they're very they're made uh, to be to be kind of to be human friendly and to be mouth friendly and mm -hmm. to be humble and to work with you, not to be in your face. Now, Veronique, uh, I uh, tend to drink red wines almost uh, exclusively yes. during the winter. Yes. And then in the summer, I'll mix it up more and drink more white wine uh, chilled and with fish and salads and things sure. like that. Sure. So can I state a preference uh, when I join the wine club? Oh, absolutely. We have red. We have, uh, we have also a mix, if you, if you wish. Or you can leave it to us and call us. In any case, we have a full warranty. Mm -hmm. Warranty, right? Or guarantee, rather. No, uh -huh. so warranties on tire, as you say. <laughs> so guarantee if you, uh, if you have any problems, we'll replace, uh, uh, we'll replace the, the wine. But uh, our people are very happy with that, uh, with that s system. And it, mm -hmm. it does create a sense of extended family. Have I mentioned that these days, that people need to have a sense of connection? Look at what's happening with Facebook and all that. You know, nobody's ever offered me a drink on Facebook. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I do believe that we need to renew some of those personal connections, because with our smartphones and our email and all of that, we're often isolated with technology as a buffer. Uh, but it doesn't replace just kicking back sharing a glass of wine with uh, friends and family, and enjoying that time you spend together? Well, I think uh, it's becoming even more obvious and important for us to promote that kind of lifestyle mm -hmm. everywhere because the signs of desperate isolation are all over as far as I can tell, and we can borrow from the European culture, which makes it uh, into such a point to get together and sit down and drink and eat and, and enjoy that relaxation. You know, they say uh, uh, in water you see, uh, in, 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 in wine you see the heart of another. And drinking responsibly wine around a, a table with friends is such a nourishing experience, and we need that sensory uh, uh, nourishment, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in, particularly in this uh, day and age. So I'm, I'm glad to contribute to that. And, and I hope that uh, other people pick me up on, on this and yeah. use those wines to, to bring themselves together. Well, let's encourage people to join the new Organic Wine Club here at the Peter B. Collins Show. Yes. And we also invite you to send us some reactions. Tell us who you invited over. Tell us uh, how they enjoyed the Prosecco or the Chateau Veronique. Mm -hmm. uh, and give us that kind of feedback because that can make this uh, even more enjoyable. Absolutely. I'm all for creating an extended family, a functional extended family of people who can uh, share important things with each other. Yeah. So go to the website at theorganicwinecompany.com. Yes. Or call me. Or call. I, I happen to answer my phone. She does. Oh, yes, I, I do. I, I can prove that. 415-256-8888. Yep. Uh, yep. Or 888-ECO-WINE yes. is the toll-free line from yes. anywhere in the continental mm -hmm. U.S. Mm -hmm. 
And again, uh, if you sign up for the club, you get three wines delivered each month for forty nine ninety nine plus shipping. And uh, these will be personally selected by uh, Veronique and her team. Absolutely. And what else would you like to tell us, Veronique? Give us, give us one wine that uh, recently you, you started offering or you have a new vintage that uh, you think might delight our listeners. It changes with, uh, with every day, really. I go through phase. It's so interesting how I respond to wine. Right now, I'm uh, really... Uh, I'm totally attracted to Syrah. Syrah mm. is one of my favorite yeah. varietals. So we, we have a whole collection of Syrah. And, uh, and then perhaps tomorrow I will go for Pinot Grigio. I don't know. Uh, the, the, the mood and um, my mood and my wines have a, a kind of a, a connection that way. So I'm, I'm excited about, oh, I'm so excited about my South Africans at the moment. I was so, I was so thrilled to discover those wines. And... Um, you know, in, in, I, I don't know how else to answer your question. You have too many children to pick one to uh, single At the out. moment, at the moment, yes. <laughs> and it depends. You know, people can call me if they want to order outside of the wine club and order a, a collection. I'm delighted to talk to people and see what they like, what they don't like, what they eat, mm-hmm. and, and pair the wine and the personality uh, to, uh, to, to, to them. And that's, uh, that's a whole lot of fun for us. Uh, to help people pick wines. Veronique Raskin, thank you for sharing your vision with our listeners and with the world out there. Organic Wine Company, online at theorganicwinecompany.com and a proud sponsor of the Peter B. Collins Show. Thank you, Veronique. Thank you, Peter. Merci beaucoup. Avec and thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Send me your comments, peter at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails